Luke 6, 27 through 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. In history, there's this, uh, there's this profound moment called the crossing of the Rubicon. How many of you guys have heard of the crossing of the Rubicon? So in Italy, um, there, was this, there was this river on the northern part of Italy, and it was said that if you were to cross that river with an army, that it was essentially a declaration of war against Rome. So when a leader named Caesar brought his army across the Rubicon to declare a civil war and that he would later uh, be victorious over, he ushered in Caesar's Rome. Caesar's Rome, uh, even though it doesn't exist today, it has a significant impact. Historians would say that you can still feel Caesar's Rome in art, architecture, technology, literature, language, and law. And so when we look back on history, there was this moment crossing the Rubicon that had a massive impact. Tom Holland is a non-Christian historian. He wrote a book called Dominion, and in this book, he, survey, he surveys early Christianity, specifically Jesus's life. And he concludes that Jesus's life and death and what his believers believed about his resurrection and his message, what he taught, verses like, love your enemy. Tom Holland would say that this was a crossing of the Rubicon that had a greater impact on human history than what Caesar did. It essentially changed our morality and ethics. And as we look at it, I mean, love your enemy when we hear that, is both beautiful and dread. It's beautiful as an ideal. Love your enemy. That sounds promising. It sounds healing. It sounds unifying. Who would balk against that? But when you start diving in and adding it to practicality, it becomes dread. When Jesus taught love your enemy, he taught it in a time of tribalism and self-preservation. And as we open our word this afternoon, we are uh, talking about it in a time of both tribalism and self-preservation. 
So today we're going to look at three things. One, what does Jesus mean by our enemy? Who is our enemy? Number two is what is this love? What, what is God asking of us? And then the last point that we're going to look at is the power to love. Is it possible? And if so, where do we get our power? When we hear uh, love your enemy, we, we normally, I think most of us in this room probably think to ourselves, I don't have an enemy. Like the vast majority of us think we don't have some arch nemesis, right? Like Batman had the Joker, the Lakers had the Celtics, Eric Donahue has that raccoon that eats his chickens. My father-in-law has the electric company, like two mortal enemies forced to do battle. Winner takes half his paycheck. Those are mortal enemies. Most of us don't have a mortal enemy. Here's the thing though, that word enemy is ekthros. And ekthros essentially means a person or group who's in opposition to you or somebody that might be hostile towards you. Now, if we say it like that, maybe it's a little bit easier to resonate with. Any person or organization that is in opposition of the way that you think, the way that you view the world, the way that you understand morality or ethics, anybody who would stand in opposition to you or that would oppose your way of thinking, your way of living, or anybody that would attack you, whether it's an outsider or a friend, you could categorize as an ekthros, as an enemy. To get a better understanding of what Jesus means by this, it's, it's valuable to understand what he's preaching into when he, when he says, love your enemies. And in order to do that, Matthew uh, chapter 5 gives a little bit of a different recording of this teaching. Here's what Matthew 5 says. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament does it tell us to hate our enemies. So where did he get that idea from? That idea comes from the teaching of Leviticus 19. And here's what's going on in that moment in history. Remember that the Jewish people were promised this promised land, and they are living in that promised land. They've built this beautiful, great temple to be a representation of what God did for them in the past, mainly saved them from slavery outside of Egypt. And this temple was a representation of what God was going to do, mainly come back and restore them to, to dominance. But for the last 300 years, even though the Jewish people was living in the promised land for the last 300 years, they have basically been oppressed by another kingdom. Right now, it is Rome. And we don't know what it's like to have a home that's occupied by another country. But imagine for yourselves that, uh, that you don't have rights to your own house, that a Roman soldier could at any time, without talking to a judge, without getting a warrant, they could just knock down your door, search your house, eat your food, and then leave. They don't have to explain themselves. They have every single right to do that. You could complain to nobody. 
Or imagine for yourself walking out of your house and walking to the store, and there they are, the Roman soldiers. And at any point in time, they can tell you to run an errand for you. The Roman soldier can be tired from a hard day of work, and he could say, here, carry my bag. It's, I live one mile away. He'd be like, I'm trying to pick my kids up from school. He's like, I don't care. Go take my bag home, and you can do nothing about that. And imagine for yourself that uh, the one Sunday that you get to come and, and worship your Lord and Savior, that you walk in, and whatever kingdom is occupying your land, there are their flags. Just to remind you, even in your place of worship, that you are currently being occupied. On top of that, there's also an influx in Israel at this time, an influx of foreigners. And with this influx of foreigners, the culture, both the religious and uh, nationalistic culture was radically changing quickly. So you are a Jewish person and you look to your religious leader and you ask him, hey, is the Roman soldier the guy that kicks my teeth in if I say anything that he doesn't like, is he my neighbor? Or what about this foreigner? What about this guy over here that's radically changing my culture? Is he my neighbor? And the religious leaders at that time took Leviticus 19 and said, no, that you don't have to love that person. I'm going to read Leviticus 19 verses 15 to 18 for you. And uh, I was going to have it up on the screen, but man, Chris really dropped the ball on that. No, I actually dropped the ball on that. Um, I'm going to read it. I want you guys to listen to, and see if you can find where this verse says you can hate your enemy. Here we go. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Did you guys hear it say hate your enemies? No. Nowhere in that verse does it say to hate your enemies. But the religious leaders at that time, they themselves were bitter and frustrated and angry at these invaders and at these foreigners that they distorted and disrupted God's word and made concession for sin using the word of God. So Jesus comes along and he corrects them. He doesn't give them a new teaching. He simply teaches from the verses that he, they already have right in front of them. And he says, no, love your neighbor, just like it says the outsider is your neighbor. Jesus is tearing down these tribalistic dividing lines of his day. It's similar to later on when he says that there's no more Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female. Israel was incredibly divided 2,000 years ago incredibly tribalistic. As a matter of fact, through all of human history, we have been a tribalistic kind of people. Sarah Rose Cavanaugh wrote a book called uh, Hive Mind. It's pretty good. And she argues, she points out through history that we've always wanted to create dividing lines and tribes. And, and she points out that this isn't always bad. 
Because ultimately, knowing your tribe is often how we make sense of the world. It's how we feel safe. It's how we know who to trust. It's how we would feel validated. It's how we have a, a belonging. It's often what we use to decide our opinion on a certain thing. What's, what are my people, my tribe? What does my trusted party feel about this? We generally go with the consensus. Kavanaugh would argue that this is a normal, natural human thing to feel comfortable and safe to have a tribe. And we can have tribes in small things like fashion. We can gravitate towards the kind of people that look like us or that are in our seasonal life. We can gravitate towards people that like the same sports or the same sports team, people that live in the same city. And of course, we can have big tribes too, like politics, our nation, our heritage, or our faith. Tribes are inevitable, but they can also be incredibly dangerous because tribalism ultimately leads us to us versus them. See, eventually having your own tribe and knowing your lines leads to comparison. And when you compare, eventually you're going to either feel inferior or superior to the next person. And as we lay down those lines and start to compare and start to feel inferior or superior, the gap between us and them widens. Demonization happens, echo chambers happen, discord happen, opposition and hostility, and now we're at ekthros, enemy. Tribes are everywhere, especially today. Mask or no mask? Is it social justice or socialism? Palestine or Israel? To vaccinate or to not vaccinate? And don't get me wrong, the issue isn't that we would have an opinion on something. The is issue isn't that we would pick a side. What Jesus is getting at is how we think and treat the people not on our side. That's what Jesus is going for. And if we think about it, like, most of us would probably say we're pretty good at being loving people. But it's easy to be a good neighbor to the people who are like us. It's easy to be kind and patient and give the benefit of the doubt. It's easy to serve people in need when they are like us, when they're in our tribe, on our side of the line. Look what he says in Luke 6.32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even the sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get the same amount. But love your enemies. You see, friends, it is not some high moral accomplishment to show grace and be kind and give the benefit of the doubt to the people who are like you. What God is calling us to is something transcendently different. It is to show grace 
and to be patient and kind and give the benefit of the doubt to the kind of person that disagrees with you, the kind of people who don't see the world the way you see it, the kind of person that holds different standards for living than you do, even the kind of people that think poorly about you, the kind of person that would criticize you or attack your character. Love your enemies. You know, if we're honest, uh, we can see how it might be hard to love that kind of enemy. But oftentimes, the ekthros that's hardest to love is when we have someone in our tribe, someone close to us, someone that we've laid trust into, and when that, that person betrays us, when that's, that someone hurts us, often the ekthros hardest to love are the ones that were once with us whether it's a friend or family or a parent or a partner. Like getting hurt and attacked from an outsider is one thing, but man, when it comes from behind, those are the wounds that could hurt the most. So how do we love the unlovable? How do we love those who have hurt us, who have wounded us deeply? What does God mean to say, love your enemies. To better understand that, it's important that we understand what he means by love. And if you've been in the church for any period of time, you've probably heard that this word for love is agape. This is helpful to understand. The translation of agape is love in our Bibles, and there's nothing wrong with the translation into love. The, The issue is more the way we use the word love in the English language. For example, I can say I love my wife, I love my friends, I love breakfast burritos. I'm using the same word to describe all those things, but you guys know when I say that, that I mean something different, right? You guys know that I love my wife more than I love my friends, and I love my breakfast burritos more than I love my friends. It's clear, right? The thing is is that agape is not as malleable as the English word love. Agape is ultimately has something to do with our mindset and our action towards other people. Listen to the way Jesus says, or I should say applies mindset and action, agape, in Luke 6, verses 27 and 28. It says this, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. In other words, to agape somebody is to will good into their lives. To agape somebody is to desire their good, is to want their blessing. See, the agape is to say, I am for your good. I desire for you to have a blessed life. So for us to agape our akthros, man, it requires grace and forgiveness and ultimately nothing short of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, in, in this, Jesus also gives another example. He says, 
to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Let me just stop right here and say that Jesus is not endorsing you or condoning the idea that somebody puts themselves in harm's way over and over and over again. Jesus is not condoning that you allow yourself to be abused. That is not what this verse means. To be slapped in the face, to be offered the other cheek, back then it was more a sign of disrespect and dishonor than it was an act of violence towards another person. And so what Jesus is talking about here is disregard your name and your honor. So here's what turning the other cheek looks like in our day and age. When you're not driving down the freeway and someone's riding your tail, instead of brake checking them, turning the other cheek looks like this. Man, maybe this dude's late for like the most important job interview is life. I'm going to scoot over. Turn the other cheek is when someone calls you a bigot or an ignorant fool for what you believe. It's looking at that person and saying, you know what? I might be a little ignorant, actually. Could you help me better understand what, where you're coming from? The other day I was at Trader Joe's, and it was like the day after they announced that, that uh, face masks were optional. And I'm walking in there, and like the lady just looked exhausted. I'm like, hey, how's your day? And she's like, it's brutal. I'm like, why? She's like, oh, one person comes in, is mad at this person for not wearing a mask. And then this person comes in, is all mad at that person for wearing a mask. Like everyone's yelling at each other because their decisions about masks. Turn the other cheek, looks to the other person and says, oh, you feel uncomfortable that my mask is off. I'm sorry. Let me put my mask on for you. Am I standing far enough apart? Uh, a couple years ago, an evangelical leader by the name of Russell Moore called out the president for some language that he was using. Uh, and the president responded like this. This is the tweet from the president. And this is not a political anything. This is just a fantastic example in my opinion. The president says this, Russell Moore is truly a terrible representative, re representative of evangelicals and all of the good they stand for, a nasty guy with no heart. Now pause, it recently came out that Russell Moore received a ton of backlash and that even his family received death threats from followers of Donald Trump. So how does Russell Moore respond? Does he respond defending himself or attacking Trump? Here's what Russell Moore says. I am a nasty guy with no heart which is why I need forgiveness of sins and redemption through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is turning the other cheek. Now, side note real quick, because this is important. Agape requires us, uh, will require of us forgiveness and grace and to desire and to will good in other people's lives. But love and forgiveness doesn't always lead to reconciliation. It's a very important point. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because verses like this are often used to guilt, as an example, women in abusive relationships to stay uh, and, and put themselves in harm's way. And again, turn the other cheek is not saying allow someone to 
to abuse you over and over and over again. It is not so much an, an issue of a requirement of reconciliation, rather the way we feel towards those people. And just as a prime example, here's Psalm 82, calling Christians to defend the weak, give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. To be a Christian is to defend the weak while agaping our ekthros. What does that look like practically? I'm not always good at this. Uh, Here's one small sampling of my life, and it's a really good one. That's why I'm sharing it with you. Some of you guys know that I had a stepdad that was incredibly abusive to both me, my mom, and my sisters. And uh, I mean, this guy tormented us for years, and he's still in my sister's lives, and he still torments them. And because of life, every now and then, every few years, I end up seeing this guy. I've seen him twice, at a funeral and at a wedding. And so agape for me, it's going to look like it different for everybody, but agape for me is when he walks up to me and he puts on that pretend smile and he's like, hey man, how's it going? Agapeing for me, mind you, I watched this man, I watched this man do things like hold my baby sisters upside down by one leg as he whacked them. And I laid in a bed listening to him assault my mom in the other room as a preteen boy trying to figure out what I should do. So for him to be able to walk up to me and I stick my hand out and I let him shake it and I look him in the eyes and I say, I hope you're well. I hope you're well. And I mean it. To me, that is agape without reconciliation. Why would God ask of us to agape our ekthros for a number of reasons? First, because every single human being is an image bearer of God. And God's glory is so good that even the dimmest reflection of him is worthy of some measure of honor. In other words, when you honor your neighbor and your enemy, in the end, you are showing glory and honor to your creator and their creator. So to agape your ekthros, to love your enemy, is to bring God his glory. And someone might say like, well, what if they like really deserve it? Well, Romans 12 Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay it, says the Lord. In other words, another reason why we ought to agape our akthros is for our joy. We are created to be image bearers of God. And to love our enemies is to do something we were created to do. So that when he asks our, his people to agape the enemies, ultimately God is inviting us to be free from things like bitterness and anger and resentment. 
Because if that is how we act out, ultimately bitterness and anger and resentment takes control of us and unravels us. We become less and less like our creator. In other words, we become less and less like how God designed us to be. He made you to agape, not to hold on to bitterness and anger and resentment. How do we do this? One way is by looking to God and seeing and understanding his love for us. It is so interesting to me that Romans 5.10 uses that same word, enemy, ekthros, to describe you and me and our relationship with our creator. Listen. For if while we were enemies, ekthros, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. See, the more we understand God's love for us, the more we are able to agape. And vice versa, the more that we reach out and agape our ethros, the more that we are able to then understand the love that God first showed us. God, in his great kindness, gave up his only son for his enemies, for you and I who were in rebellion against him, who mocked him, who belittled him, And he did it because he loved us. So when we agape, when we love our enemies, we are being like our father in heaven, which is what Jesus says in Luke 6.35, you will be the sons and daughters of the most high. Hmm. You see, the kingdom of man is full of us versus them. It's full of tribalism and bitterness and anger and resentment and lines being drawn and echo chambers and frustration. It's full of people that are just like, I'm done with these people. I want to move away and surround myself with people who think like me, act like me, raise kids like me, vote like me, like just more and more and more echo chambers. That is the kingdom of man. It is broken. But the kingdom of God promises reconciliation. It promises unity. Uh, we're going to close with this. My, my family and I saw Raya and the Last Dragon. How many of you guys have seen that? Cool. For the rest of you, I'm going to ruin it. You don't, ha- you don't have to watch it anymore because I'm going to tell you everything about it right now. It is, it's pretty good. Um, all right. So the opening of Raya and the Last Dragon is that there's these five kingdoms. And at one point, the five kingdoms were... They were unified, but as we find them, they're kind of divided, right? And so Raya's father tries to bring all the kingdoms together to make them unified again. And Raya, following her dad's lead, ends up being betrayed. And chaos ensues. The droon come. It's like this black goo that turns everyone into stone. And uh, then we fast forward and now rise in her teenage years. And it's like this post-apocalyptic world. It's pretty cool. And she's after uh, trying to find the last dragon because her dad told her that this prophecy, that if you brought back a dragon to life, that he would have the power to, to bring the world back together and reverse the curse of everyone turning in the stone. So fast forward, Raya finds the dragon. I told you I'm going to ruin this movie for you guys. Raya finds the dragon 
It's worth it, though. She finds the dragon. I'm going to make it better when you guys finally see it, okay? Raya finds the dragon. And in this pivotal moment, at the end of the movie, Raya is face-to-face with her enemy, the same person that betrayed her. And she's being called to trust, to give this person the benefit of the doubt. But both of them fail in that moment. And what happens is the dragon dies. And now fast forward a little bit more and the Droon are becoming more powerful. And basically the last five people on earth are five representatives from the five kingdoms, a motley crew of people. It's like a little baby that pickpockets people, seriously. Uh, a, A boy that loves to cook, Raya, this big gnarly warrior dude, and the girl that betrayed her. And in that moment, just as the Droon is about to like devour the last five people remaining, they realize that even though the dragon died, the dragon left them with the power to unify the world. And all they needed to do was trust one another, give each other the benefit of the doubt, and even lay down their lives for one another. So just as darkness is coming down, they do just that. And the curse is reversed, and the world becomes unified, and Raya gets her father back. Why am I bringing this up? Because I wanted to ruin the movie for you. In days like today, it could feel like our dragon is dead, like Jesus is gone, but he's not. He's alive. Not only is he alive, but he's left you and I with the power to bring about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He has entrusted you and I with the Holy Spirit that can empower us to ekthros or agape our ekthros. And it is that kingdom that God intends to use to reconcile the world to himself. So how do we agape our ekthros? By looking to God and understanding his love for us and then by accepting the invitation to cross over the Rubicon and declare war against division and rely on the Holy Spirit to reconcile the world back to the way it was meant to be. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.